It was, uh, well, it's actually July 2018. Some of you might be fans of this movie franchise, Mission Impossible, which has, I think it nets Tom Cruise $25 million per film. Not bad going, really, is it? For somebody who's actually even smaller than me. That's pretty good going. $25 million, that's pretty good going. Uh, however, for some of you who don't know this, and maybe some of you don't know it, it was actually based on a far more superior 1960s, 1970s TV series. And uh, it was one of those kind of American um, Mission Impossible titled, but it was this guy, his name, what's his name? I'll tell you who his name was. Peter Graves. Took a while there. <laughs> Peter Graves, he, he was the kind of one of the, the leaders of this team who would take on impossible missions. And it, it was a really amusing start. It was that kind of 60s, 70s, real corn. He'd, he'd get given this, this tape, one of those things that you used to play sounds through before it was all a uh, MP3 and then whatever it is now, streamed. Uh, he, he'd get this tape. And, and he'd kind of act the most suspicious that you could ever imagine as he hid himself away to listen to this tape. Why, why nobody got that he was doing something really strange, I don't know. But he'd act suspicious. He'd go into a little room, he'd press this tape, and it always ended with these words, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. And then amazingly, the, the kind of the tape player would just start smoking uh, and the tape would disappear course, the idea that you could lose information in our age is just, how can you lose information that quickly? Uh, it was also pretty strange, wasn't it, that everything that was contained within the mission was on that tape, and it's gone. Uh, that's some risk, isn't it? But Peter Graves took the mission on. I find it fascinating. We can take that storyline from the 1960s, 70s, we can take the storyline into the most recent franchise, or we can go all the way back in time, and we find something really fascinating, that we are desperate to hear the idea of stories which are not just about heroes, but they are stories about salvation. That's what's written into those stories. Somebody who can come in and can do the impossible, Somebody who can save us from the world about to be blown up or whatever else is going on in the, in the uh, particular episode. That's what we crave as a society. So many of us, our stories are written around that very idea that there might be this hope against all the odds. There's something deep about that. It's not just a nice little escapist fantasy. There is something deep written inside of us that we look for hope. We look for saving. We look for something bigger than us. Something that's going to come in and take what we know we are and carry us to a place of safety. In a huge way, that is the story of Exodus. It's about salvation. That's one of the points that we saw last week. It's about God's people being saved. 
But really you can only understand the need for salvation when you understand the desperate context in which they were in. First thing that we see is a strange kind of behavior. Look at what it says in verse 2. It talks about the idea of this woman who's given birth. Um, uh, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And she could hold, hide him no longer. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds among the in the banks of the Nile. That's a really strange action. That's a really strange thing to do. When a child is three months old, to take a basket uh, and to weave it and then to waterproof it and to place a lid over the top of it, which was obviously breathable, and then to hide it, presumably during the day when people are around, hide it in the river just amongst, amongst the, uh, the, the, the reeds, the side of the river, so it's not going to kind of float away down the river, hide it amongst the reeds, presumably each evening come back take the child back home when people couldn't see and then place it again each morning before people could see. And that is a really strange thing to do. In fact, if you watched on TV this sort of new parenting guide, the way to bring up the most amazing children that you could ever imagine, and they said, take your child, hide it away in a river in a basket, uh, in the water, throughout the day, uh, and then come back each night and just, just have it at home for the night time. That's the way to raise really independent children. Strange. And the reason that it's strange yet not strange is because it is rooted in real life experience. It's actually rooted in the, in the events of the previous chapter. Chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says this, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew mid midwives, whose names were uh, Shifra and Pua, When you are out helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if you see it as a girl, let her live. That was the experience of the people. That at that time... The Hebrew midwives were ordered by Pharaoh to go whenever they were attending a birth as the baby was born. Just to grasp a hold of this, as the baby was born, they're to recognize whether the baby was male or female. If it was a male, they were to presumably kill it immediately and then sadly say to the Hebrew mother, I'm really sorry, your child has died. That takes us to a different place, doesn't it? That is the real experience. And so there was an understanding of what was going on. Presumably, there was also something else going on, which was along the lines of, and if we don't manage to catch them in the early stages of birth, then we'll kill them while they're babies as well. That is the real life experience. So I, I kind of, for maybe some of us who have grown up in, in church and we've got this nice cutesy picture of 
Moses in the bulrushes. That's the reality. What do we do with something like that? Why is it in the Bible? I think the reason it's in the Bible is for us today not to listen to cutesy stories. Uh, I mean, it's fine and it's great for us to nurture our children on understanding the general storyline of the Bible, but at some point we've got to break from that cutesy picture and we've got to see the graphic reality of the lived experience. Why? Why does the Bible portray that to us? Why is God displayed in that kind of way? I think He's displayed in that kind of way in narrative form so that you and I are invited to do this, We're invited to walk alongside the characters of the story in the real-life experience, to try to sit alongside them, to feel the way they feel, to feel the issues, to feel the fear, to see the threat. And as we hear and see those true experiences, then we have opened up around us the possibility of a God who saves. You see that? We've talked nicely about Exodus being about a God who saves, but we only truly understand the idea of a God who saves when we understand the graphic reality of how God is saving His people. And so we find ourselves, I would encourage us, as we walk through this journey of the narrative of Exodus, I would invite us to sit alongside the story, to walk alongside the characters as they are introduced to us, as the story unfolds, to feel the way they feel, so that the experiences of our lives can sit alongside those real experiences of those Hebrews in Egypt, so that we can understand if God worked in that way for them, then how is God able to still work in our lives? That's the invitation. Maybe for some of us, this is, this is a, a strange perspective on the Bible. This might be new to you. This, this might be something that you've not heard about. What we're seeing here is the idea of God bringing and saving a people, an invitation which remains today, which we're going to see. So really, I'm going to use the word visceral, that kind of really deep, in within us, the real tension, the kind of moment of the true us engaging with this story. This is a visceral story. So, the first thing that we see, there is a desperate and real need for salvation. And it is in a hopeless situation. That's where we, that's where we see it. They're hopeless. How can this possibly turn around? It just seems humanly impossible. What we find now in four steps is a surprising Savior. So we're going to chunk up this section. We're going to go through it quickly in four simple steps. 
and we're going to see what is going on in this narrative. So, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Isn't that interesting? It's really, it's, we kind of read that and we say, oh, okay, right. Now, if we're used to reading the Bible, or maybe if you're not used to reading the Bible, we just read it. It's like really interesting, yeah. But that's really strange, actually. Because we find out within a few verses the name of the child, but we don't find out the name of the parents. We just find that there's these two people, a Levite man, a Levite, uh, or a man of the tribe of Levi, a Levite man and a Levite woman. It's all that we find. In fact, we don't find out their names, Amram and Jochebed, until chapter 6. And in chapter 6, their names are in a list. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Doesn't it seem as though there's almost something sad about that? You, you know, why don't we find out their names? Why don't we personalize them? Why don't we see that that is real people? How can we understand the reality of the situation? How can we sit alongside the narrative and really feel their experience if we don't even understand their names? I want to invite you around a Hebrew campfire for the first readers and hearers of these stories. These events were later captured and were written down. And as they gathered around, these stories would be shared from generation to generation. They would become part of the DNA of the people. Stories which would resonate. And so as we sit down around the fire and our old granddad, mm, that's not very good, is it? I want to be younger than that, really, as I read it. Our granddad starts to read the story. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she gave birth. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. If we were the first hearers of this written story, there would be a murmur of excitement. Because it was a Levite man and a Levite woman who gave birth to a son. That doesn't mean anything at this part of the story. But what emerges, what develops as it unfolds is the significance of the tribe of Levi. The Levite tribe become the priests of God. They're set aside. They're the ones who act in the tabernacle they're the ones who act in the temple. And as we hear that generations later, we know all about that. We know the Levites are really important. And so when we hear this, a Levite man and a Levite woman give birth to a child, we go, whoa, there is something important happening here. Because at the moment, they're all slaves. They're just a mass of Hebrew people enslaved. But a Levite man and a Levite woman have given birth to a son. It's a little, which we don't get because we just pass it by, it's a little sparkle of hope as we read it. It's a little moment where we say, this is some, something could be happening here. 
You know, when you read a story and you feel as though there's, there's a little glimmer of something because you get the cultural meaning. You know, when, when we realize that a policeman walks around the corner and we go, something might be about to happen, we get it. We get the cultural implications. We don't get it, but for the first hearers of this, they get it. Something is about to happen. Things are beginning. Change is afoot. There is movement. The next thing we see is when, we, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. It's amazing. It was bordering on remarkable that she managed to hide him for three months. That's, what, that's one of the things that we see here. I want you to sit alongside this young couple who've got this child and feel what it's like every day. Is my child going to cry at the wrong time when Egyptians are about to walk past our little home? Is it possible that we might today lose our son? That was the experience, and time went on. Days turned into weeks, turned into months, and then there was that moment where it was, we can't do this anymore. Now, if we just think about it, how long are you going to be able to hide a child in a basket in the river? Three months, any of you have been through, sat alongside, watched the experience of a child growing up, you know that three months, you just, you're going to start struggling. They're going to start turning over. They're going to start trying to climb out of the basket. That is not a good thing when it's in a river. Although, in one sense, this is a remarkable step, it is a desperate step, isn't it? It's a desperate step. Put him in a basket. Put him in the river. It's not going to last for long, but it's the best we can do at the moment. It's a remarkable step that they take, but it is so short-lived. It was bordering on remarkable that they were able to hide him for three months and they take an extraordinary step. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking alongside the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. At this moment, as the sparks from the fire float up, we are to feel a shudder of fear. Pharaoh's daughter is headed for the basket. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. At this moment, the narrative is taking us to a point where everything is falling apart. It really is 
falling apart. Who might find the child? Well, fishermen, maybe. Other Hebrew slaves, maybe. Townsfolk, maybe. Who finds the child? Pharaoh's daughter. That's like the worst outcome you could possibly imagine. Pharaoh's daughter. How close can you get to the throne? She's probably the one who could just wander in to Pharaoh whenever she wanted. Unlike all sorts of other people, she probably has the kind of access and understands what's going on in the country unlike anybody else. But then even worse, she recognizes what kind of child this is. This is one of the Hebrew babies. And at this moment, that hope that we had when it was a Levite man and woman who had given birth to a child is about to be torn apart, apart from another little glimmer of hope. What's remarkable in this moment is that she has compassion. She has compassion for the child. What a surprise. Then his sister, who we also don't find out the name of until later on, the sister of the child, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? (laughs) that, That is a moment of God-empowered, astounding guts, isn't it? Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older... She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That is amazing. If it was remarkable up to now, it becomes miraculous now, doesn't it? The Hebrew people are desperately oppressed. And Hebrews, uh, sorry, Pharaoh's daughter says, find the nurse to the young girl who's watching the basket, who goes and gets the mother of that child, who's already nursing that child of a night time, and Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll pay you to nurse him. What a turnaround. This is shock and awe in the narrative of the story. The invitation at this point is, how is this going on? How is it happening? At each point of the way this narrative unfolds, we are invited by the narrator to ask this question. We are invited to consider, are each of these stages astounding fluke, or is this the hand of God? Now, that idea, that concept, is what we carry through our lives. 
the events that we see unfold, the way things happen, of course they are happening in the ordinary world, aren't they? What's happening? She puts the basket in the water. It doesn't divinely, cosmically float or become invisible or anything like that. It's a basket in the water. The baby cries at seemingly the worst of times. Pharaoh's daughter finds the child. You would think that he's about to be killed, and yet it's reversed, and the poor slave mother ends up getting paid to care for the child. Then later on, he goes and he lives in the palace of Pharaoh. The invitation that is made in the narrative to consider, is this fluke or is this God's hand, is an invitation for us to say, how do we view life? How do we see things unfold? Are the things that unfold, the natural flukish events of life, for good and bad, or are they? Can we? Are we invited to take a different lens and view it the same events through a different lens and say, God's working. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are invited to do. That's the challenge that we hear when we understand this dilemma of a God who works in this world in the reality of this world, and yet often it doesn't look as if God is working in this world. It's an invitation for us to say, I invite you rather to see it through a different lens. And the the way that the narrator invites us to see it is he says, it's a Levite man and woman. That's like a little kind of sparkle that says, here's God working. Then look at how it unfolds and see how God works, and see how God works. And yet that is still rooted with horror, isn't it? Because the end result is that she gives up her son to go and live with Pharaoh's daughter. This is still not cutesy, is it? She still loses her grown son. There's no indication how old he is, when he goes into Pharaoh's palace. But at some point, once he's nursed, one would imagine, she loses him. Remarkable salvation, and yet still the gritty reality of this world. A surprising Savior has been born. So what can we do with this? Why is this important for us? I think there's an invitation for us to taste God's ways. Firstly, God continues in this little story a pattern which He has already established previously and which He carries on through the rest of his engagement with his people, and it's this. The birth of a Savior, which is marked by remarkable circumstances. 
How have they ended up here? We saw it last week brilliantly because God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And this great nation that he's made is in slavery in Egypt. But how did they end up there? Because Abraham, remarkably, at an old age, was able to give birth to a son, son, Isaac, who gave birth to a son, Jacob, whose sons resulted in them being in Egypt. That's the first one. And there are many others. Let's take Samuel, a mother who desperately is looking for the salvation of God's people. That's the theme that always sits alongside remarkable births. It is not about just we need to get away from the idea that it's all about wanting a baby. It's not that. It's about the idea that the Hebrew mindset was written into the idea that we are looking for the Savior of God's people. Abraham. Samuel. Does it take you to another remarkable birth? His name was Jesus. It's as though God is taking us, creating stepping stones on the journey so that you will understand how I work and you will be able to recognize when I intervene. The most remarkable birth of all of them, born to a virgin, that is remarkable. All of the others you could say are incredible, but that is miraculous. All of the others are journeys to prepare us for the astounding moment of the birth of a Savior, which is marked by the taste of God's way. Secondly, God's salvation is worked out in the reality of life. I'll say that again. God's salvation is worked out in the reality of life. We might like the idea, or we might conceive of the idea of the beauty of a kind of religious experience outside of the humdrum of life. In fact, many religions try to take us to that place, get us outside of life. But this Savior, both Moses and Jesus, are born in the grit of life. Real life, gritty, awful, terrible life. Now, We have to ask the question, why? Why? Why is it like that? Because life matters. And life is not what it should be, but life to be restored and redeemed has to be worked out in the reality of life. That's why Jesus comes as a real person and lives a real life, and dies a real death, and raises again as a real person who eats and drinks and cooks, because life matters. And then thirdly, biblical salvation is always liberty from slavery. It's all about liberty from slavery. The people in Egypt here, they're slaves. 
Right the way through the rest of the Old Testament, we see a journey of slaves, slavery, and release. And all the time, it's about the intervention of a a remarkable Savior who comes in and saves the people. This is our introduction. This is our introduction to the Savior of Exodus. His name's Moses. But it's about slavery. And you say, well, hang on a sec. I know that slavery is a terrible thing, and slavery goes on even in our world today, but I don't, I'm not enslaved. I'm not enslaved. So how does Jesus become a savior for slaves? Was he only relevant to those who were under Roman occupation? Paul makes it really clear, whether you're the richest or whether you're the poorest, whether you're free or whether you're the worst oppressed of slaves, Paul makes it really clear that the slavery that Jesus came to release us from is the bondage and slavery of the impact and experience and perpetration of sin. That's what it is. Romans chapter 6 and 17, he says this, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That is just beautiful language. He says you were slaved, but you've now been liberated to something which you now see, which now claims your allegiance. It holds you bonds you into it because it is something of such worth. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Was it Bob Dylan who wrote the song? I can't remember the title of the song, but the lines were, you always got to serve somebody. (laughs) We are always a slave to something. Our world is currently in the 21st century tells us that we continue to enter into voluntary slavery. We are a slave to our careers. We are a slave to social media. We are a slave to money. We are a slave to the aspirations of living a great successful life. We are a slave to the desperate desire to be healthy until the day that we hopefully just disappear in an instant, having lived a beautifully healthy life until the last moment and we die doing the thing that we most enjoy. We are a slave to all that stuff. And we are a slave to the propensity of our hearts to rebel against God. That's what we are. We enslave ourselves and we are enslaved. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to set you free from that kind of slavery so that you no longer need to find your hope for riches in this riches of this world because you will be more rich than you could ever imagine in a world which I am going to establish for you. You don't need to look for your identity in all of your likes and friends because I will be the one who loves you. And you can only do that when you are released from the bondage of the slavery of your 
necessary desire to rebel against me <laughs> and learn to love me instead. So what does this mean tomorrow? What does it me really mean to be freed from the slavery of my sin? What does it mean when I go into work or go into my neighbor's house or whatever you're doing tomorrow? The pattern of our lives tomorrow is shaped and put into context by the salvation that we find in Jesus. So the times that I find myself desiring to rebel against Him, I realize again my desperate need for Him. Does that, is that how your, yours and my sin works? Does, does it kind of hold us in this kind of bondage that says, I've done this and therefore I can't be a Christian and I've had it and I'm done in and that's the end of it? Or do I look at it and say, thanks for the salvation of Jesus that puts into perspective my failings? Do I find that the horror of this world is put into perspective by the hope of Jesus? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, nor do you. The most surprising and awful things can happen to any of us in an instant. And yet, when our hope is in Jesus, even those terrible things we find can be put into perspective. Secondly, salvation is being worked out in the reality of our lives. Christian faith doesn't whisk us off into some ethereal somewhere. Jesus, Jesus doesn't save us and zap us to heaven straight away. He could do but he doesn't. He says, now, in that salvation, go and live it out. It's a great place to be. Enjoy your freedom and liberty in me. And live it. Go and live it tomorrow. Show the world that you are happier to be in my care than in your own care. Show the world that you're safer Show the world that it is worth it. Show the world that this is a better place to be. We live in a world which is desperate for hope. And Jesus is the greatest hope that this world has. We can't work out a better hope. Do we show it? Do you know it? Do you know that hope? And remember that sin is the enslavement that we are liberated from. We don't understand anywhere near enough what it must have been like for those Hebrew families to fear the imminent death of their young male babies. 
It was deep. It was heartfelt. It was constantly fearful. And yet that is the portrayal of a sin-shaped world. That's what, that's what they were on. That's the picture of slavery that they were in. And when we understand the desperate nature of our rebellion, then we really understand how beautiful our salvation is. So I want to encourage you this week if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and you are shocked once again by the kind of life that you are able to live in rebellion against Him and it breaks you and you feel completely crushed, that is the very moment to rejoice that Jesus is your Savior. And to say, I have hope.